Oh, yeah. As usual, if you're between the ages of four years old to the second grade, you are welcome to leave with Austin. He never catches that I make fun of him sometimes. Well, thank you for the Eastways for coming and sharing. Uh, Many of you may or may not know or remember that I came to faith through the ministry of Young Life as a high school kid. Um, Every time somebody shares the story uh, of the paralytic being carried in by the four men, I'm reminded that I was the paralytic. Um, As a freshman in high school, four of my best friends came to know the Lord and began praying for me and inviting me to things. Um, And they brought me to the feet of Jesus and it forever transformed my life. And so I'm extraordinarily thankful for the ministry of Young Life. Um, And so if you have a chance to talk to the Eastways, I'd encourage you to do it. This summer, we have been working through a series in Hebrews 11. We've been looking at different pictures of faith. What does it really mean to have faith in Jesus? What does it mean to, to trust Jesus? What does it really mean to follow Jesus? What does this word faith really get to? Is, is faith a list of rules that if I check the right boxes, God will approve of me? If, is faith a, a moral code that as long as I do this, this, and this, and I don't do this, this, and this, will God approve of me? And the answer over, over and over and over in the scriptures is faith is taking God at his word and living like it's true. Faith is believing in the saving work of Jesus Christ and living like it's true. And that as we hold this book, as we esteem this book, we're going to look at it, we're going to read it, and we're going to see what God says. And when God makes a promise to us, like I will never leave you or forsake you, we're going to believe that. We're going to hold on to it. And when life gets challenging and hard, we're going to cling to it because we're going to believe God meant it. But similarly, not just with the promises, with the commands, when you get to a place like love your neighbor or make disciples, we're going to choose to believe God means that just as much, just as clearly And so by faith, not only are we going to be comforted by God, by faith, we're going to step out and stand out for him. So as we've walked through 13 different pictures of faith, this morning we get two. Coming in Hebrews 11, 30, and 31, we have bounced around through the Old Testament. I joked early on that as we entered into this series, you could look at it a couple of different ways. One, we were going to look at Hebrews chapter 11 during the summer, and if that seemed too full or rich for you, just think about it. We're going to cover the whole Old Testament. So this week, we're going to dig into the book of Joshua. Both of our pictures come from the book of Joshua. So if you have a Bible, now is a great time to open it. If you do not, there's a red pew Bible sitting before you. We would love for you to have it if you don't have one. It is an ESV, the version that we are going through, and you will find us on page 178 this morning. Hebrews 11, 30 and 31. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they'd been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were being disobedient because she had, been, she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And as we've done every week, we're going to turn into the Old Testament to look at this story to look at these different pictures of the faith, remembering that where we left off last week, that the Israelites had been in captivity and that God had come in and and freed them from slavery. 
And as we worked through that passage last week, we talked about the fact that we are all subject to slavery. They were literal slaves in a literal kingdom, and we can be a slave to sin, still a literal slavery. And the same way that God intended and freed them from slavery, he does with us. And so we're going to look at the Israelites. What does it look like to walk out of slavery? And then to see somebody else, another character, Rahab, to see her find her freedom. Join me in Joshua 2. It starts this way, Joshua 2.1. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. Now, if you're entering into Joshua 2, you have to contextually understand where we're at. Moses had previously sent 12 spies into the promised land. Remember that story? Moses sends 12 spies. 10 come back and say, no, it's too big. It's too crazy. We couldn't possibly take it over. Two men say, God told us we could. And so let's be faithful to God. One of those men, Joshua, the other one, Caleb. So Joshua Having learned from the incident in Numbers 13 that sending 12 guys is a bad idea, sending two faithful men is a way better idea, sends two guys into view the land. Now it's an interesting perspective for Joshua to have faith in this moment because Joshua, by faith, is taking it that God is going to give them the land the same way Moses did. But Joshua's command is not, is very different than Moses's. Because Joshua tells them to go view the land, especially Jericho. What Joshua is interested in doing is knowing that walking into the land, the first major city they were going to come across was a city called Jericho. At that time, Jericho was probably the most heavily fortified city in the known world. You'd want to know what was going on in Jericho if you're about to walk into it, wouldn't you? So he sends two guys to walk through the city. He wants to know where do they keep their guards. He wants to know how deep and thick the walls are. He wants to put together a battle plan. He wants to take God at his word. And he wants to live like it's true. This week as I was studying for this teaching, I came across an interesting quote that I'd like to refer to at least two more times. The late Warren Worsby said this, and I think this is tremendous. Believing a promise is like accepting a check. But reckoning it is like endorsing the check and cashing it. Now hold on to that for a second. Believing a promise is like accepting a check. I'm writing you a check and I'm handing it to you. You take it. You believe the promise. You've received it. And yet you're not living on it yet, are you? Reckoning it is endorsing the check and cashing it. It's that move away from just receiving something to now living on it. And that's exactly what Joshua does here, sending these two men in. Verse 1 continues. It says, They went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. Early on in Joshua, these two stories start to interwine, and we're going to spend time bouncing back and forth between the two of them. But you have two spies going into Jericho, and how they found this woman were left to guess. But they come across a woman named Rahab. Now the scripture says Rahab is a prostitute. But it's fascinating to me, if you read enough intellectual writings about this passage, people really want to move her away from being a a prostitute and into wanting to be an innkeeper. Why? 
Because it's more palatable to us to think that God would use an innkeeper than to think that God would use a prostitute. And I'm going to articulate a couple of times that we have a poor view of faith when we think that. That God can save and use anyone he delights to use. And in this particular context, he chooses a woman who has the oldest profession and chooses to use her for his glory. The king finds out that the Israelites have come to her house. And inevitably, a number of people come there, but the king finds out that this is going on. He sends a messenger to her, asks what's going on. Why are these two men here? We need to find out what they're doing. Clearly, they stuck out. And Rahab lies about it. And the messengers leave. Verse 8, it continues. It says, Before the men laid down, before the spies, she came up to them on the roof and she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and all of the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. You get a testimony of Rahab. Rahab says, I've heard about your God. I've heard how he goes before you. I've heard how he provides for you. I've heard how he takes care of you and, and he meets your needs. And they, she acknowledges on behalf of her old people, we are terrified of your God. And yet, she claims him too. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth below. She is willing to confess and acknowledge who he is. And in a polytheistic culture, that's actually pretty incredible, given the, the parallels to Sihon Og, these other ideas, that for her to make that claim is a, a claim of statement, it's a statement of faith in the God of Israel. She acknowledges who he is and confesses it. And then Rahab asks them something. Rahab stepped out in faith, provided for these guys. Rahab did something extraordinary, risking her own life. And then she asked them to promise that they'll be kind to her as she was kind to them. She extends grace to them because she believes in their God and then asks them to extend the same grace back. Verse 18 Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and your mother and your brothers and your father's household. So she, they give her an escape plan. When the Israelites come to Jericho and we start waging war on your city, put a string out your window, and then we'll know exactly where you are, and we'll know to be kind to your family, and we'll know to show you the same grace that you showed us. And they keep their promise. So you assume that these spies go back. A lot happens between Joshua 2 and Joshua 6. But you assume somewhere in that process that these spies sit down with some paper and start drawing out exactly what Jericho looks like. Because they're wanting to make a battle plan very clear. They're wanting to know where the walls are the thickest. 
and where the walls are the thinnest. They're wanting to know the weaknesses of Jericho. So they make their plans. They decide how they're going to go about this battle. And then they meet with the Lord. Turn to me a couple of pages over to Joshua 6 and we'll pick up the story. Now Joshua was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. We knew that based on Rahab. They understood the people of Israel. They understood their God. These people are terrified of what's about to happen. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand. Now think about that for a moment. God is calling Joshua into faith. And he walks him up to a fortified city that's rearing for battle. And says, look, I've given you this city. Do you think God expects him to trust him? Do you think God expects belief from Joshua at this moment? See, Joshua leading the people of Israelites, when they were told they could inherit the promised land, could have readily stopped at the Jordan River and built a camp and said, man, we're living the life. Here we are. We're by this nice river. And never have stepped forward in the faith God intended for them to have. They could have stopped short of walking into the fullness of God's promises. And yet now they walk up to this huge fortified city and God said, see, I will give it to you with its king and its mighty men of valor. And then God gives them a battle plan. You shall march around the city, all of the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow their trumpets. Now, if you've been around the church for a while, you've heard this story. If you've been around the church for a while and you've got children, you've told this story. Has it ever considered you to consider the absurdity of the story? Here we have an army of people who've prepared for war, who've made battle plans. And God says, I want you to walk up to the wall and walk around it. And then go to bed. And tomorrow I want you to wake up and walk around the wall and go to bed. And tomorrow I want you to wake up, walk around the wall, and go to bed. And tomorrow I want you to wake up and walk around the wall and, and go to bed. And tomorrow I want you to wake up and walk around the wall and, and go to bed. See, God does something... It, incredibly fascinating to me because he's accomplishing two things. One, we're getting a really good idea of whether the Israelites are going to take God at his word. Do you really believe me? And two, walking around the wall, they're going to get a really good perspective of the, the defenses that the city has. They're going to walk around and they go, I don't know. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't see that there yesterday. I don't, they moved some troops around. These guys are a little better than we thought. They're going to have to wrestle with themselves a little bit. And on the seventh day, I want you to walk around it seven times. There's an absurdity to what God asks them to do. And sometimes, obedience seems absurd to us. 
And sometimes it's because we don't understand what God is doing. When God puts something before us and says, trust me, I'll take care of it, we should trust him. And in this case, they walk around the city seven times and then blow their horns. And what happens when they blow their horns? The walls fall down, don't they? The entire city gets decimated. Now, if you were to take the time to study the book of Joshua, read it. And I really do encourage you to read the whole book of Joshua. You'd find an extraordinary lesson through the whole book. Consistently, God calls his people to show up for a fight. I want you to trust me. I want you to show up for this fight, and then I'm going to tell you what to do. And consistently, God does all of the fighting. And you actually find that's a whole lot of our faith, isn't it? That if we'll take God at his word, we'll trust him that it's true, and we'll walk in faithful obedience, he does the hard work. Over and over you find that to be true in Joshua. Will you trust me? God keeps asking these people. Will you trust me? It's interesting. Later on in this book you find, I think it's in Joshua 13, that they're going to attack a city. And these, all these other people come, and these like other kings gather, and, and, and they want to wage war. And, and God makes the sun stand still and, and starts hurling lightning bolts fantastic story. Somebody should make a movie of this. But the best line in the whole story is the Israelites realize at the end, God killed far more people than we did. (laughs) God waged way more war than we were able to accomplish. One of the things we have to appreciate in this moment is that faith is trusting God and then letting God do his part. And God will absolutely take care of his part. It may not look the way we want it to, I'm sure there are warriors from the tribe of Israel who felt frustrated that they didn't get to shoot an arrow or throw a spear. It didn't turn out the way they'd hoped. But God was asking them to inherit the promised land. He was wanting them to walk into freedom. And it wasn't simple. And it wasn't easy. But it did require every step of the way for them to trust him. For them to take him at his word. And to continue to take him at his word. And to continue to take him at his word. Friends, if we walked through this, one of the great hopes we've had is to not put a picture before you that faith is simple or easy. It's actually not. It's extraordinarily difficult some days. It's painfully difficult some days. And yet, the challenge we have is to continue to take him at his word every day, to continue to let God be on our side and do his work, and to know that it doesn't always turn out the way we want it to. But ultimately, these people took Jericho, and ultimately they took most of Israel by the end of the chapter. It's a fascinating study to walk through that whole book to see how God continuously calls them to faith and then utterly provides. It's an opportunity you have when you come across somebody that you feel like you're supposed to share Christ with, and you're terrified. And you think, oh, I don't even know what I'm going to say. I don't even know how this is going to work. I'm just, hmm. God, you've called me to be faithful, and I'm going to trust you right now. 
I'm going to try to love a neighbor who's exceedingly hard to love. I'm going to try to engage a coworker who drives me crazy. To step up and to say, I am going to be faithful. And I'm going to let God do what God does. And to trust him in that. To trust him with all of it. As God is working through Israel, as God is calling his people over and over and over and over again to believe in him, to trust his word, and to put their hope in him, there's a sub-story in this. As these guys are walking around Jericho, inevitably, they see the red string. You're sure Rahab probably put it out the first day. Rahab probably woke up early that morning and put a red string out her window, wondering what freedom would look like for her that day. And on the second day, and on the third day, and on the fourth, and the fifth, and the sixth, Joshua 6, 22. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the women and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in, and they brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought out all of her relatives, and they put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house. But Rahab, the prostitute in her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Jericho saved a lot all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she, was, she has lived to Israel in this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Rahab stepped out in faith, did something extraordinary, and saved these two men. And in return, they put, asked her to put out a red string, and they were faithful to her. One of the great appreciations we need to have for salvation is that to be saved means you're saved from something. It's often something that people who've grown up in their whole lives in the church never really consider or put their arms around. That you are saved from something. And you're saved from judgment. And as much as I don't love judgment, there is a reality of it in the Bible. Because over and over and over and over and over again, there are places where we have to wrestle with judgment and salvation and God saving people from things. There's a reality of judgment in the story of Noah that we don't like to admit that's there. And there's a reality of judgment here that God is judging a people and we don't like to deal with that. And there are whole long arguments about it and I'd love to have the conversation if it's something you struggle with but God saves Rahab from something and judges everyone else. Let's go back to Hebrews 11. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they'd been encircled for seven days. By faith, by trusting God and taking him at his word, this incredibly intense war, which could have taken weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, took a month, or took a week. My language is off this morning. This war that could have taken months lasted a week, but it was a painstaking week. 
It was a week where they had to consistently ask, will God provide for us? Will God take care of us? And yet, they trusted him. It's the Worsby quote, believing a promise is like accepting a check. Reckoning it is endorsing the check and cashing it. It was one thing for them to trust that God would take them into the promised land. It was another thing for them to walk around the city seven times. In trustful obedience, walking around the city seven times. And who did the work? And who overcame the city? It was the Lord. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. By faith, these people trusting God did a tremendous work. And in verse 31, by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she'd been given a friendly welcome to the spies. By faith, Rahab took God at his word. What did she know of God's word? We don't know. We just know that in multiple places, this book testifies to her faith. So clearly, she trusted him. And who was Rahab? She was a Gentile prostitute. Now, historically, people like to argue the fact that she was an innkeeper because we don't like the fact that she was a prostitute. We don't like the fact that she was involved in some of the dirtiest work on the planet. And we don't like the fact that God brings people from the outside who aren't like us and who don't practice the way we do into our midst. We're really stinking uncomfortable with that. And yet, by faith, Rahab the prostitute, a Gentile prostitute, a Gentile, it means that she didn't get there by having the right family. She wasn't related to anybody in order to get her into the club. A prostitute I means she didn't get her act cleaned up. In fact, you're, you're left to assume she's a prostitute this whole time. She did not clean up her act before believing the Lord. And yet God does something extraordinary with Rahab. Something absolutely extraordinary. Because if you follow the biblical story and you've got to get a little bit more, do some detective work to work this out, you start to figure out what God does in Rahab's life. Because Rahab doesn't stay a prostitute. Rahab actually marries a man named Salmon. Not a great name for a guy. I get it. I didn't name my kids that. Salmon becomes the father of a guy named Boaz. Which makes Rahab the mother of a guy named Boaz. Boaz you're familiar with. Boaz marries Ruth. This makes a Gentile prostitute Ruth's mother-in-law. That's kind of extraordinary if you think about it. But it gets more than that. If you track down this line, you start to figure out that this Gentile prostitute was the great-great-grandmother of King David. That's pretty extraordinary. And if you really want to dig into your scriptures, you would find that she is the great, 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 there are 35 greats. Can we just give me 35? Grandmother to Jesus. You find it in both the accounts in Matthew and Luke. Rahab clearly believed God. And God did something exceedingly extraordinary in her. By taking her into faith. See, as God has brought these Israelites and he's calling them into the promised land and there's obstacles along the way, 
We need to appreciate that as God is calling people out of slavery and into freedom, that there's going to be obstacles in the way. And that as God would bring somebody like Rahab to himself, we need to appreciate that there's an everyone to faith. The faith is available to everyone. That it's not limited on whether you know right or wrong, and it's not limited on who you're related to. But faith is about believing God and taking him at his word. And it doesn't matter your background, and it doesn't matter your history. God has a redemption story in the lives of all of us. And he's working to redeem us through the saving work of his son. He wants to do something incredible in our lives by giving us freedom. He wants to do something extraordinary. But it takes us taking him at his word step by sometimes painstaking step to continue to hold on to him, to continue to believe in him. And to watch this process as Rahab, a Gentile prostitute, comes to faith and gets recorded in the scriptures in multiple places to even be related to Jesus. There's an everyone to faith. It doesn't matter where you're at in life. It doesn't matter what you've accomplished or what you've done. It does not matter what you struggle with. Will you take God at his word? Will you trust him? And will you believe in him? There's an everyone to faith. But there's also an action to faith. Faith isn't just sitting there in belief. Faith isn't just crossing the Jordan River and putting up a tent. Faith isn't just sitting in a room going, oh, I did, I helped the spies. They're going to help me. I'm not going to put out the string. I'm just going to trust and get destroyed. There's an action to faith. It's active. You see it in the Israelites, and you see it in Rahab. One of my favorite, favorite things in the scripture really isn't one of my favorite stories in John 5. It's Jesus and the, and the man at the pool of Bethesda. One of the extraordinary things you see when Jesus comes across a man who's paralyzed, over and over you see this, that when Jesus comes across somebody who's paralyzed, he doesn't get down on his knees and pick them up. He's constantly calling people, stand up. He's looking at them in a moment of faith, calling them to something more. Stand up. That's got to be crazy if you're paralyzed. Because you've got to really believe you can. You've got to really trust God in that moment and think, Jesus has got to have some power. I don't. You've got to trust him to make that move, to lean forward, to shift your weight at all. There's an action to faith. It's an active thing. It's reckoning the check. It's taking it to the bank, signing it, and writing it away. Now I'm going to do something a little dangerous. Not not that dangerous. It's probably not dangerous at all. If you'll follow me into James chapter 2. James chapter 2 is a a challenging chapter in our Bibles. 
So challenging that when Martin Luther translated this book into German, he left out the whole book. There you go, Martin Luther. Two, James chapter 2, verse 18. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So you start to get this challenge here, and in, if you've been around the church at all, this chapter gives a lot of us a little bit of angst. Like, mm, is he going to tell me I have to do stuff? Is he going to tell me in order to have real faith, I've got to do a list of things to do right and wrong? Because am I saved really by my works? Like, I, mm, angst. Angst-filled moment. And yet at the same time, we find in the following verses, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? altar. You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. You skip down a couple more verses, and we find our girl Rahab. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also also faith apart from the works is dead. What James chapter 2 starts to articulate to us is that works are a symptom of faith. They're a symptom. They're a testimony. They're evidence for it. And when we look at situations and story like the Israelites and we look at Rahab, there was an activity to their faith. That it's not just sitting back and going, I believe in God and it makes no difference at all in my life. In fact, the articulation in James is that's a dead faith. That's a non-existent faith. But to have a faith that rests on and takes in the promises of God and believes God's word wholeheartedly and lives it out, that there's a testimony of the faith. There are symptoms of the faith. We can look at it and go, well, here's this and here's this and here's this. There's something going on there. Now, I don't bring you here because I'm wanting to cast anyone out of the church or bring anyone new back in. I bring us here because the scriptures really are kind of clear in a couple of places that faith is active. It's not believing in Jesus and sitting on our hands. It's not pick and choose Christianity where we underline his promises and we go, oh, these are really true. God will be with me always. He really wants to comfort me in every and all situations and yet never asks anything of me. God can't say no to me ever because I'm really my own authority. See, there's an appreciation of our faith that to take God at his word is not just to cling to his promises, but it's to consider his commands and to live those out with the same integrity. Guys, people in this generation are really bad about taking their scriptures and highlighting verses and marking some out. Now, we'd never ever say we mark them out. I still haven't met somebody who's got Sharpie marks all through their scriptures. But we do pick favorite passages. And we do pick favorite verses. And we have things that we like to quote because we're really good at it. And yet we find other passages and other sections that are just as true that we really struggle with. They're like, hmm, ooh, I will not spend my quiet time over there. Our whole goal of walking through Hebrews 11 
as to continually put an argument of the faith before you. That faith is not a set of rules and it's not a moral code. But faith is taking God at his word and living like it's true. Faith is trusting him with everything. Leaning into his grace. None of us is perfect. None of us will be perfect this side of eternity. Faith is not about trying harder or doing more. Joshua would prove that to you over and over and over again. It's not trying harder and doing more. Faith is taking God at his word and living like it's true. That's what faith is according to the scriptures. There's tension in that. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we believe he gave us this book to live by. So I want to call us as a church to read it and to trust it and to hold the promises really high and to cling to them and to hold the commands really high and cling to them so that we appreciate the fact that we are called to love our neighbor even if they're the hardest person to love on the block and we're called to engage our coworker, not to earn brownie points or not because there's a great scorecard in eternity, but because it's obedience. We were given grace so that we could give grace. We were given grace so that we could give grace. So that the great and incredible redemption story that Jesus Christ would work out in your life is that God is so incredible and amazing that he could forgive you of your sins and want to use your life as a testimony of his redemption so that you could constantly, constantly tell others about the great thing he's done in forgiving you. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word that in it we find freedom. Your word describes us prior to coming to know you as a slave to sin. And yet your finished work on the cross frees us from that slavery. It frees us completely from that slavery. It frees us entirely from that slavery. And yet there's not one of us here who doesn't struggle with sin. I'm the chief. Father, I pray that you would continually call us to a deeper faith. And by that, I mean that you would consistently call us to trust you more and more and more and more, and that we'd give more and more of our lives to you. And Father, when we go through hard times, that you'd allow us to cling to your promises. If we go through good times, that we'd cling to your promises. But all the while, Father, we would seek to live out your word We'd seek to tell the redemption story that you've told in the scripture. We'd seek to tell it through our lives. We are so thankful for Jesus Christ. We're thankful for his work at the cross. We're thankful for salvation that he offers us freely. It's in his name we pray. Amen.